Welcome to Giving a Voice Podcast, where I raise my voice on the realities of human trafficking and give a voice to those who've been oppressed into silence. Join me as I interview experts on human trafficking, how to keep you and your kids safe, and how to raise our voices for a slave-free world. I'm a human trafficking activist, a public speaker, and host of this podcast. Warning, topics of this podcast may be triggering. Hi guys, today we have Monique Anna. Monique Anna is the co-founder and executive director of Victory Garden Sanctuary, as well as a published author. Monique Anna worked to heal the trauma of being born and raised in the Children of God, an international cult, the eldest of 13 siblings. Leaving the cult at 19 years old with her two-week-old baby girl, she immediately started on an education, therapy programs, and self-care path. So Monique, can you tell us about yourself and your story? Absolutely. Thank you, Camilla, for having me. Yeah, so I was 19 years old and had a two-week-old baby girl, had been born into the Children of God cult, which was an international group. You can Google it to find out all the awful details. But basically, the leader of the group created a cult around himself that protected him layer upon layer upon layer of of rings of people, concentric rings, um, with himself protected at the middle. And my parents joined very early on in the early 1970s. And the group started as part of the Jesus movement. Uh, I think there's even a movie out called the Jesus movement or something about that right now. Uh, I saw it, it was like, you know, there's a bunch of hippies that were like, Jesus wasn't a Christian. He ha- had long hair and a beard and hung out with, you know, the, the, the dregs of society. And, you know, he wasn't like the straight laced Christian. So there was this movement that really, I think had a lot of good intentions in it from the young people perspective. But this man who started the cult was a pedophile and had been molesting his daughters. He was an apocalyptic, Bible-thumping, fundamentalist Christian who got kicked out of multiple churches um, in the Southwest because of, you know, inappropriate conduct, what he was doing with his daughters, I'm sure, but also maybe church members. We don't know the details. Anyway, so when they first joined, it was, I would say they thought they were joining something that was going to help humanity, you know, had purpose and they were going to create something good for the future. And it was like this you know how you put crabs or lobsters in cold water or frogs in cold water to cook them and you turn, turn the flame on and they just don't know it's happening. That's kind of what happened. And, you know, 13 kids, probably more actually that we don't know about 13 kids later. I left the cult very early on. I left in 1994, October, 1994. And the group still exists right now on some level, but the the trafficking that happened was multiple levels and layers. You know, we were the kids that were in the parking lot asking for donations, the way that kids do selling chocolate bars and stuff nowadays. A lot of those kids are being trafficked, by the way. Those kids that are out there selling magazines and chocolates and stuff like that, many times they are uh, not doing it willingly. We were doing that um, and giving all the money as tithe, basically, to the cult leader. Um, They had another level of trafficking where uh, our mothers were to 
sell themselves. Um, and there was this whole accept Jesus into your heart thing that they had to do with the men who were buying their bodies. And many children were produced from that movement where they were trafficking, our mothers were trafficking themselves pretty much, you know, working for escort agencies or sitting around in hotel bars and going through that whole, you know, process that they call the game now. So I grew up believing that that was going to be my future. We also had a very apocalyptic, like based on the book of Revelation storyline, which meant that, you know, I wasn't going to live probably to 14 or 16 because Jesus was coming back. So when I first left the group, well, first of all, I left the group because I was not going to raise my daughter around pedophiles because the last slow cook that this leader did was normalized pedophilia. He said that God told him whatever is done in love is not a sin. That is so sickening. Yeah. And it's a real problem because, you know, many of these pedophiles, the ones that are prolific, that are able to impact a generation of youth, male and female, many times, are in positions of religious power. And they have a double life. And that's, you know, the leader of the cult was that and kept getting exposed and kicked out. But we're seeing things right now where major corporate you know, 501c3 organizations are getting drugged through court right now for protecting pedophiles, having records that go back into the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, you know, from the Roman Catholic Church all the way through all of the, the sects and cults that, you know, exist in the United States and the Western world and everywhere, really. So I left because I wasn't going to raise my daughter in that, but I left believing that I was going to turn, I was turning my back on God and I may be struck dead at any moment because I was walking and away that's what they from had taught spiritual you mission. You? Of course. Yeah. That's always the premise, isn't it? That you, you need to suffer here on earth for your reward in heaven. So our entire lives were, were soldiers in God's army and we have to tell the world about Jesus before the end times. And that was like the the top layer of this. And there were layers and layers and layers. And I, I believe that the layers went so deep all the way to the point that the people that were controlling the money were not actually the cult head, the leader. There were groups that were funneling money and, you know, skimming off the top and putting it into private funds, buying stocks and bonds and land and all this kind of stuff. And I know this because there are, people who joined the cult and were in those positions related to finance who are doing very, very well right now. So, you know, there was a religious aspect that they bamboozled all of the grunters is what I call them. You know, us who were out begging on the streets, knocking on doors, selling Selling themselves and tapes. Yes. Whatever way it was that, that level of trafficking. And then the inside layer was this disgusting, you know, adults take advantage of children sexually, because if you do it lovingly and in kindness, then it's not a sin. So there are generations upon generations now, you know, we have grandchildren now, and the cult still exists in very secretive ways. So who knows what's happening to people who are still following the the teachings of the cult. Whatever happened to your original cult leader that you had growing up? He was a drunk uh, pedophile and he, he got a second wife and she ran the cult. She kept him, you know, very malleable with alcohol. He died of liver disease 
and just kept feeding him young girls and young women until he died and took control of the cult and turned it into this like super, you know, competitive, like inverted feminine, you know, inverted energy of, of this competitive, jealous feminine that, you know, was super strict, evil, like the way you see like the evil nuns in the Catholic church. Yeah. That, that, that corporal punishment is something that they enjoy. That was basically our childhood. So he died, he got away with it and she still exists. She's still alive. That is such a horrifying fact. Her name, her name is Karen Zerby. Z-E-R-B-Y, Karen Zerby. But when all that stuff came out about the Karens, I made a meme and it was like the OG, <laughs> the, the OG Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Taking back the power at yeah. least a little bit. I had You're, to, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today and for being brave enough to share your story, to shine a light on these pedophiles, these pedophilia cults, and just cults in general. I am doing a study right now, a research study with my school, and I'm researching um, for my final in my criminology class. And my thing is pedophilia is my research topic. Yeah. And I was looking Uh up pedophilia cults, and it is shocking how many there are, and internationally, and they're no. Yes. The thing is that these rings have infiltrated every single level of authority figure to the general public. So you have veins of, you know, that are, that's a ring, like obviously certain, you know, private entities like child protective services, as an example, which is a private entity that contracts with corporate government, right. To get funds to protect children. And within these levels of authority, and not just this, that, but hospitals, safe homes, foster system, every single level of all of these things that we have that are supposed to do good, have inverted authority figures in them that are there for the exact opposite. Just like when a pedophilia or these corrupt people get in government and they get in power of how fast it can spread. And how much power they can truly control when they get it. Yeah. And just to shine a light on that yeah. and figure out who it is and stop this corruption. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that people don't like to hear is that, first of all, we talk about slavery as something that ended 400 years ago. That is not yeah. true. Yes. The wholesale above board domination of certain ethnic groups like our Black and you know, Native American citizens are <laughs> neighbors yeah. now, right? Their ancestors were by their color alone defined as slave and they had to prove otherwise. Um, so that above board wholesale acceptance above board is gone maybe. And the same families that were, were buying and selling humans are still doing it today. I mean, not all of them, obviously, but they've gone underground. They've changed their names, but it's still happening. It's it, it's a fifty billion dollar industry. Yeah, a year, fifty billion dollars. Millions of children disappear and are disappearing as they walk across the border. They're being sold either as a whole being for whatever kind of use, or 
body parts. Yep. For organ harvesting. People with money who can buy those organs. It's sickening. And that human trafficking is modern day slavery. We need to realize that and we need to look at that. Yeah. Well, here's something that, you know, it's an incredibly frustrating and illuminating awareness that these phones that we're talking on were created most likely by little hands that were gathering minerals in places where they are on the daily little kids going out and putting their hands in these places to get minerals for these phones, for this technology, for computers. So for um, cars, uh, all of the clothing that we get, all this cheap clothing, all of it is made with slave labor. Like, in other words, this is such a prevalent problem that it's, it's immense and expansive. And when people first really begin to understand, this is why it's, you know, people are like, oh, conspiracy theories, oh, blah, blah, blah you know, what like was going on during the pandemic where it was like, that's not real. And it's like, okay, maybe Wayfair wasn't putting kids in their furniture and shipping them out. But then again, if you really understand the truth of how big this thing is, it's not inconceivable that some evil genius tried it at some point. Yeah. So my, my childhood experience was, was in a cult that had trafficking but I am completely okay bundling trafficking victim, cult victim, domestic violence victim, religious trauma victim, all of these manipulations, the narcissist manipulation has the very same blueprint. Yeah. So I started a nonprofit that is focused on all three of those things, human trafficking, domestic violence and cults like because they're the blueprint is the same and so the healing process can be the same you know it's not like maybe that maybe the, the levels of trauma were different but the process of realizing what it is that your what your trauma is like coming to to face to face with that trauma and doing release work uh is the same no matter what kind of difficulty or trauma you've experienced. So, um, yeah, at the layers, it's all the same and it's going to impact your life. How has all of your experiences of trafficking, of pedophilia, of being part of that international cult and religious trauma, how has that all impacted your story and your life? So when I first left the cult, I was going to my first, you know, doctor's appointment. I was speaking to a nurse who was asking me questions and filling out my chart. She stopped and she's like, you know what? I've never met anybody with this crazy of a story. Yeah. You need to get into therapy. She, that's the first thing she said to me. I was in therapy within maybe a year and a half, two years and spent faithfully doing talk therapy uh, with a psychologist. And she referred me to many books to read, um, gave me the the idea to begin journaling. I started to dream journal and I really started to delve into my own spiritual practice. When I left the cult, at first I thought God was going to strike me dead. And I had to learn to not have that fear on the daily, like with every move that I make, is this going to be my last moment? It's a very scary anxiety ridden place to be. So my first decision was to say, okay, I don't believe 
at all in anything that I was taught religiously, spiritually, nothing, like just let it all go and see how that feels. And it was such a a peaceful feeling to just say, okay, God's not going to strike me dead. And it was a really important phase. Uh, I, I call it an atheistic phase because I had to let go of everything to figure out what was real and what was manipulation. And um, I was in school at the time and um, that I was doing this talk therapy with the psychologist. And I, I began to have my first spiritual epiphanies. And over time, I started to realize there was a pattern to my healing process where I would come to a new memory and then I would kind of have to dance around it, write about it, you know, kind of timeline it and then start to feel the feelings, you know, by taking different aspects of the story and like, and then, you know, doing meditations where I would do release work. Okay. I'm going to like focus on, you know, releasing that grief as an example from my lungs and do breathing exercises. But I began to see like, when I focused body, mind, soul, so I would do body work, like the breathing or exercise, like stretching, you know, yoga movements, learning to be really present with my body. Um, And then mind work, like talk therapy or reading, and then soul work, like meditating, or, you know, beginning to kind of dabble with things that are spiritual that can become religious. I guess that's the way to say it. And I realized really early on that this pattern, this mind, body, soul connection doing, you know, like a triple threat where you're giving yourself self-care as therapy, like a mind exercise and a body exercise could be painting. You're, yeah. you're combining two modalities and, and it helps you think in, in an abstract way that gives you peace and allows you to let go of your anxious, chattery mind or whatever it is. So I, I decided that I was going to really focus on that concept of like providing for all parts of the the self because I I have had consistent bubbles of epiphany and healing still happening today. And I still go through the same kind of steps of, okay, am I taking really good care of myself with good food? Am I getting enough sleep? Am I getting enough nutrition? Am I being kind and loving to my body by exercising? Um, Am I working with my mind by reading books or you know, exercising in my mind in some way and, you know, meditating for my spirituality or whatever it is. So the nonprofit Victory Garden Sanctuary was based on that formula of really giving yourself all of these different modalities at the same time. So at the nonprofit, the goal is to offer retreats to victims, whether it's trafficking, cult, domestic violence, um, the blueprint is the same, so the healing process, and it can be broken down to something as simple as breathing. We, we have four steps in breath. The in-breath, which is inhaling or expanding, and then holding the upper breath with full lungs, and that's also, you know, like a broadcast, right, because you're not do- inhaling or exhaling. And then you exhale, and you're releasing, you're letting go. And then when your breath is low to where you have nothing left in your lungs, if you hold it at the bottom, that's like a grounding, like where you can really like, I'm solid, I'm here, I exist. So the whole formula is body, mind, and soul and doing this four-step energetic approach with all of the different body, mind, soul parts of your personality. So we're developing a program with all different types of modalities and there's 
so many brand new healing modalities. You and I were speaking about one that I had never heard of, which I thought was really cool. I think that what, what psychologists and psychiatrists and healthcare professionals are coming to understand and, and alternative modality workers like body workers, massage therapists, acu, you know, Eastern medicine, like acupuncture and all this, they're realizing that, okay, we've got to expand because people can't fit into these like cookie cutter molds all the time. The program for someone has to be tailored to who they are, which means, you know, first step really is attaching to the inner child and saying, Hey, what do you want? How do we work with you? Cause that's ultimately the place where we do the healing work is in the past. And then, you know, we bring that part into the future and integrate it so that we're stronger in our real life. So we're doing an event, uh, at the end of April, April 27th is early arrival. If people choose 28th, 29th is an intensive training and then the 30th is like a, a fun day to just hang out because the, the property that we're going to be on is just lovely um, in Southern California. And our focus for this is finding therapists, uh, advocates, those that are interfacing on the daily with survivors, whether it's survivors of trafficking, cults, or other types of extreme abuse, violence, physical violence, or emotional violence usually a mixture of all of it, and helping to expand their understanding of modalities that maybe they're not super familiar with. So I'll be speaking, sharing about my booklet that I wrote. I wrote a little booklet that's actually the preface to my storybook, which I've been writing since like for the past 10 years, kind of. <laughs> um <laughs> But, but the preface, it has become a little booklet because it really, it goes through all of the different types of documentation that I used to chart my healing path and connect to other parts of myself and really tap into the parts of self that are within the subconscious because a lot of the trauma is held in the body and it's locked up and controlled by parts of us that went through the trauma, that part of us kind of goes into to freeze mode and ices out and becomes numb so that we don't feel it. Yeah. And I love to say that that's such an important skill. It's a survival skill. And if we can accept it as something that was really important in other parts of our story, it kind of eases the, the, the anxiety around, can I heal? Because yeah. it's like, oh, this, is, this actually served me well. So my booklet kind of goes into talking about the different types of healing and, and kind of what you and I are talking about right now. So I'll be sharing that. And then we have just a stellar superstar team of women who are therapists and from, you know, doctors and nurses to yoga therapists and somatic breathing. And my co-host Rosie is an expert in um, seeing patterns in the banking system where trafficking may be happening based on patterns. So it's all about patterns, you know, patterns in every single level and layer of this. And I think that's the key for anyone that like is listening to this and is like, how do I help? Well, really doing the investigative work yourself and really understanding how prolific it is and how many different ways this trafficking industry is thriving. Like it affects everything. Children. Yeah. Yeah. The question is, who's buying children? Yeah. Who's, who's buying children? So, and, you know, 
the best thing that people can do right now is first of all, just dive deep and gain the awareness for themselves. And they're going to find in that deep dive where they can fit into the solution. Yeah. I think that so much of what you said is just such an important topic of just first off um, your story and overcoming all of these theories that you were told when you were young. And I think that that must have been so hard to break of just realizing that everything that you were told and that you were taught is a myth and that that's not the reality of the world and overcoming that. I cannot imagine that process to the fact. Honestly, Camilla, I think that my whole childhood, because I had moments where I went to public school for half a second because we child protective services came to the address and forced our parents you know, and then, then we moved very shortly after that. But I had like little moments where I was kind of in the real world. And I always, there was a part of me that always knew that it was all bullshit. Yeah. Excuse my language. Um, A part of me that always knew that I was worth more than the way that I was being treated, that there was injustice happening and that I didn't deserve it. And I think that's really what made me Yes. I think I, there was a part of me that always knew that. So when I, the reason that I knew that as a child is because of the work that I've done as an adult. Yeah. And I know that is from that a time, linear time out. perspective, yeah, from a linear time perspective, that, that may not make sense, but there, I've done a lot of work in meditation where I would go back to younger versions of myself and say, Hey, everything works out and we're safe in the end. Yeah. We're okay. So yeah. And just the therapy work. Yep. I think that so many people believe and think, oh, well, they're out. They're good now. You know, the event's done. It's yep. good. It's over. Why is this still affecting them? When it does, like, and if you don't let it affect you, I think that the subconscious that you're talking about even more takes it in. After my trauma, yeah. I was in complete denial and I wouldn't accept any of it. And I would wake up screaming, covered in sweat every single night with my mom waking me up. And just, it was, and just like how the subconscious takes that and goes, you're not going to process this. We have to do it for you. But once you can accept what you've been through and really work through it, and that's when the overcoming comes. Yeah. And people need to understand that you and I had some extreme violent trauma. Maybe somebody hasn't had that traumatic of an experience, but had something traumatic happen. And so they think, oh, they needed to do it because it was so bad, but mine isn't that bad. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do therapy. Yeah. The thing is that whatever your, you know, top trauma is, it has the same impact on the body, on the spirit, uh, you know, so people think that somehow that therapy makes them weak when in actuality it's hard work. And that's the part, you know, we use the excuse of, Oh, I'm not weak. Yeah. Yes. And it, it, because you go into these dark places, but there's great reward for being willing to go into the stories and do the release work. There's great rewards in the future. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I still have difficulty in my life. My life is not perfect, but I think about it like, wow, can't even imagine like who I would be if I hadn't done this work. Like, you know, so, and I think that if somebody, no matter what their age is, beginning the process, it immediately gives the trauma a pressure release and 
if, if you're working with professionals, and I speak about this in my book too, that having a team of professionals is critical. So I, I wanted to offer my booklet as um, a free gift. I, I have it on audio. Um, so if any of your listeners are interested in that, I, I'd be happy to send that to them. That is amazing. Or, Thank you, know. you so much. Yeah, I think that it will really help sure. a lot of people. And like we said, that acceptance piece, I was in denial for so long because I don't have a story near as hard as yours. And I was like, oh, well, like comparing mine to everyone else's that I thought that mm. mine wasn't yeah. valid. And realizing that just because someone went through something more doesn't mean that yours doesn't still exist and it isn't still hard. And accepting that, overcoming that, and coming to acceptance, where you can then move into the healing piece of coming back into your body. I think another piece that I really recognize that you're talking about is the work that you do to help people heal and bringing the soul back into the body. I know that especially Mm -hmm. with sexual abuse and trauma, those get separated so much and it's really hard to connect back. Um, I think that that's where a lot of eating disorders come in with trauma, a lot of drug issues, is just how do we reconnect those? And I think it feels right. Impossible. The the addiction that we have are what we use to numb the place that hurts. So yeah. for me, it was an eating disorder. Um, me too. You know, even even pornography and video games, alcohol, food, anything that gives us comfort or kind of puts us in an altered place can become a numbing agent. And that's that's kind of the beauty of of being human is our resiliency and the, the, there it's called neuroplasticity, which basically means that at the neuron level of your brain, you know, even if you, your brain has been wired by drugs or to some type of addiction. So you've got these like super deep pathways in your brain that force your body to say, I need this. I need this. I, I have to do this. It can feel so overwhelming. And I was in an eating disorder for a good 15, 16 years started when I was like 12 and went, you know, into my mid thirties kind of, I think that the bringing the soul back into the body is, is really like the core work that we have to do no matter what we've gone through. I definitely agree. Um, My eating disorder, I'm still recovering from it. It started when I was eight years old. And just coming back into the body and realizing what is the main issue, what is causing these addictions. So inside of that, what advice would you give to someone, especially a, a human trafficking survivor? What advice would you give to a survivor of human trafficking to heal from their trauma? I would, first of all, tell them to be patient with themselves and understand that healing has to start with learning to love yourself. And you just got to be patient when you fall or fall back into things that, you know, are the, the numbing agents and um, creating a team around yourself of some type of professional therapy, like a talk therapy, as an example, is a really great foundation to build self-advocacy. I think the first key to healing is self-love and taking responsibility for loving yourself and not making it anyone else's responsibility. And we want so badly to be loved and for things to be better. But if we have memory stored in our body, 
even if we are in a situation where we are loved and heard and understood, those frozen trauma horror stories will kind of bubble up in our new stories in in ways that we may not see the pattern in at first. But if you start working through it and seeing the patterns and doing the release work, and the other thing too is it's not a there's no destination in healing. Absolutely. We're always going to be on that path and just letting go of the idea of someday I'm going to be healed. You know, there is no destination in healing. It's it, as long as we're living, we will have to love ourselves and we'll have to be present in our bodies and we'll have to be the one responsible now on from now on for things that happen. And, you know, for me, I like to look at what I'm doing as creating little containers of space that will allow someone to tap into their own healing abilities because no one can heal us from the outside. We have to be invested in it. We have to be willing to go through the process. And I think it's very important to find your higher source. You know, I grew up with the name God and Jesus. And those were triggers for me for a very, very long time. So others that have had religious trauma may may have similar issues with certain names. But, you know, what I know now is that the creative source that produced everything here is love. Creation is the emotion, the vibration, the frequency of just beautiful life producing love. And whatever you decide to call it, the important thing is not the word, it's the frequency that you are staying inside of to do the healing work. So self-love, I do this often. I will, you know, make a request to source and say, please, I'm opening myself right now in my heart. I want you I want to feel you. I want to feel that love. And it it sounds very simple, but calling on a higher power, whatever you decide to call it, you can call it your higher self. But to me, higher self is part of the angelic realm, if you will. It's the part of us that, you know, like the guardian angel that's watching over us, that's watching every step and can see what's going to happen in the future. So if we're tapping in to, you know, our higher self, our higher sources with, with a request, that's the ask, right? We will receive. That's just, that's a law of the universe that when you push, there will be a pull. There's always like consequence to the action. So I think that self-love is most important and asking a higher love to manifest in your reality and, and feeling that frequency. It's not a simple thing to do if you're disconnected from source. And it can yeah. be a practice in itself to come to that place where you, you're tapped in to the soul part of the body-mind-soul process. I think that that is really necessary in a healing journey or in any journey is just believing that there's something looking out for you, believing that there's something out there that cares. And whatever your higher power is, that's okay. Personally, for me, I believe in God and he's my higher power and I trust him with my life. Um, And I think that that's just a really important piece to be able to overcome this life. Yeah, I agree. So when you got out of this cult, 
you had all these misconceptions, all these misbeliefs. You didn't really know you weren't properly educated, right? No. How did you survive in this world with a newborn baby and really just nothing? I got lucky meeting the right people along the way. I also grew up working, you know, um, begging on the streets or whatever. So I always had a very good work ethic when it came to, you know, taking care. So we were not properly educated, meaning I don't think I got more than third grade math. One of the first things that I did is sat down and started studying for the GED. And the only reason I passed the GED is because it was a cumulative of reading and writing the cult was massive on reading. We, we, we were taught flashcard reading, phonetic reading very early on because we had to read the Bible and the cult leaders published works and all this kind of stuff. We always had an encyclopedia set. We were never allowed to read it, but I would start at A and with a flashlight in a closet in the middle of the night or in the middle of the day, if I could get away, I would just start at A and go book by book by book all the way to Z and just read encyclopedias in so many of the houses, the communes that we lived in, the books were there, the encyclopedias were there so that if we were ever raided and the authorities came in, we could, with a smile on our face, say, oh, yes, we're getting an education. We're very happy. Nobody's hurting us. So I read the encyclopedias. And so I passed the GED. And that's how I got into college. Never really got beyond the third grade with math. So that was always like not my strong suit at all. But I feel like I had to memorize so much Bible verse and Uh the cult leaders words that memorization was something that I was good at. And I think that I, it was one of my strong suits that helped me navigate. And, you know, I had a babysitter that helped me with childcare. Um, Her name is Carla. And was just such a great help early on in my daughter's life. She was her babysitter for like five or six years. And, you know, just such a great friend and and source. Like she was one of the good people that I met. And I think I've always like been willing to listen to people and maybe not learn, (laughs) but at least (laughs) heed their warning somewhat. (laughs) I think that as humans, we always want to go through it ourselves. Like, it doesn't matter what anybody tells you. We want to, like, go through the experience so we can say, I knew that before it happened. So dumb. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Your story and your work ethic is just so powerful to be able to, first off, just leave. Sure, the cult wasn't great, but it was probably your safety, right? It was still your home. Yeah. But to be able to have the courage and bravery to be able to leave that, leave your family. So when I first left, I was with uh, my daughter's father. My whole pregnancy, you know, we weren't a couple. We were friends. I happened to get pregnant just because that's the way things were in the cult. But we were good friends, uh, more on an intellectual and analytical level. And he actually left the cult with me as well. So it was the three of us. But that's kind of where I got my um, courage from. Support. Yeah. And then, you know. Did a lot of uh, roommates with with friends early on, but I just wanted to, you know, bring that in too. So that was part of the story. Yeah, that you had the support system in this space. I did. I had I I got lucky along the way, and I think I I kind of have always had street smarts. Like I could tell when somebody was lying, or you know, I just had that intuition, which has always been right 
eventually. So um, it's been probably my saving grace. Yeah. And just so important, especially coming into this world the way that you did. Yeah. And just, I really, I'm so inspired by your story and by your courage. And I know that my listeners will be too. I'm also super excited about your event coming up in the retreat in California. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be speaking and it's going to be an amazing opportunity to really just thrive in this community of people. Yeah, absolutely. So what does the future look Um, like for you and your organization? So this event that we're doing is kind of the launch of our introduction of, of the concept, the, the model of the program. And it's basically the accommodations are very similar to the way that an event would be an intimate group setting for a group of survivors or an individual survivor who comes to the land and goes through their own intensive. We'll be having, you know, three, four, five day long retreats for survivors that are very similar to the way that the Blossom event is going to kind of flow. And the idea is to, first of all, provide a space for any of my counterparts from my childhood cult to come and and go through just an experience. Um, And we want it to be, you know, because it's a beautiful natural setting. There's no wires, no, you know, phone connections, if you will. (laughs) It's a really a great chance to kind of unplug from all of this modern world and our modern problems and kind of tap into like, what does it mean to be human? Like waking up at the crack of dawn because the sun is in your eyes with, you know, birds singing in your ears and then being outside in the sun and, you know, walking on, not on concrete, walking on, you know, natural land. There's a thing called grounding that people do or even forest bathing, as an example. Those are two terms of exercises that people do on purpose now to help reduce anxiety. And basically it's walking barefoot and taking a walk in nature, you know? Um, So the physical space is beautiful, but we we wanna be able to do these type of events around the country. So ultimately I'd love to see um, more physical spaces. We're working on a program right now that can become a business model so that we have a way to self-fund ourselves, which I think is really important. Yes. Um, when I when I went to school, I got my degree in business, business management. And so I'm using that education to kind of build this business model. But ultimately, my goal is to be able to provide jobs to survivors, you know, people who have come here that I've that we've been able to meet and go through the program and And, you know, you you can't really approach a lot of these dark issues if you don't have your basics taken care of, like food, shelter. You know, it's literally impossible to unwind enough to to do healing if you're concerned about where you're going to live or, you know, if you're going to have food on your plate. So eventually being able to provide a way to help survivors learn how to become business owners and a support system of networks that can, you know, be that I think is really important for any trafficking or domestic violence survivor, right? Because many times the narcissist keeps you under wraps, so you don't develop those things. Yeah. And what a beautiful industry uh, right now, it's going to come into. Yeah. Right now we're just, 
doing, you know, the events here on site, but we're going to, we're going to grow. I also want to grow a team. Um, and I'd really like it to be, it will be, um, people coming in that understand, you know, this drum beat fully so that we're all going the same way. Yeah. How can my listeners support you and your organization? Well, I have a page that I just made and I can send you a link to it. Um, and then it links back out to the main page so they can I'll see put that in the, the regular notes. website. Okay, great. Um, basically it's just a page that, you know, there's, there's a space for donations. If, if somebody, you know, if, if, if somebody doesn't have the, the energy or the capacity or a desire, you know, to volunteer on some level, and there is also a volunteer application on that page, but if somebody doesn't want to do that, there is, um, you know, just a real simple five, ten, fifteen dollar contribution button on that page. But we also have a sponsorship package for any corporate, any corporate people that may have a need for tax deductions. Obviously, a CPA, an accountant would be the one to talk to about that. But even just sharing this podcast or following us on social media and being willing to like repost and help just share awareness. Um, there's a lot of nonprofits and organizations that are coming online right now that are survivor led. Um, there's older organizations that are in place that have boards of directors that are completely, you know, disconnected from the survivor experience. So I think grassroots small nonprofits that are integrated into communities and can, you know, stand arm in arm and look at each other and say, I know that person. I'm that that's a good nonprofit. That's a good nonprofit. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that vertical and horizontal support. Yeah. So I'll send that page. Um, but if anybody is interested in volunteering, there is an application. If you fill that out, you know, I'll respond to that and we can have a discussion. There's so many things that I could use help with from, you know, online work to um, in-kind donations, which basically means if there's someone here in Southern California that has resources such as you know, building supplies because we're building structures or has food supplies or, you know, there's so many different things that I, that I list on, on that page that, you know, somebody could help or even just reposting that page, you know, to social media and, and really just learning about what's going on and finding, finding a place to kind of knuckle in and, and become part of the solution. Yeah. And all of those will be my show notes as well as a link to be able to buy tickets to your event, which, like I said before, will be quite amazing with a lot of incredible professionals sharing their knowledge and their wisdom Mm -hmm. on these subjects. Um, Finally, my last two questions that I always ask, what advice would you give Mm -hmm. to parents trying to raise kids in this generation? Ooh, okay. I read recently that uh, a psychologist child psychologist asked the same question of all of his children for like 20 years. And I'm paraphrasing here, but basically he said like 95% of the children said they know their parents love them when their parents are playing with them. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So that's important. Mm-hmm. And sometimes for us that have been traumatized playing and just being present in the moment can be one of the most difficult things. Yeah. Feeling loved. But yeah, but playing literally like for a little kid, it would be make believe or coloring books or dress up, you know, and as your kids get older, maybe going into the teen years, it becomes harder to know like how to stay connected. But that's when I think like 
there's so many outdoor activities yeah. that could become great bonding experiences. And that's one of the things that we offer here. You know, um, we, this space is available as an ongoing fundraiser for people that want to come out and we are kid friendly, obviously not during this event, but you know, dog and kid friendly at other times and the place is beautiful for hiking and, and all that kind of stuff. So if somebody is interested in doing that, you're more than welcome to reach out and you know that can be arranged as well. Beautiful yeah. space. And that'll be a great resource in- to be able to connect with everyone. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Lastly, how do you think people can raise their voices in this fight to abolish mo- modern day slavery? I know we talked about this a little bit in the podcast during our conversation, yeah. but just the last few thoughts. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I think it's the deep dive is super critical. And there's so many tentacles to this. This is like an ancient curse, an ancient plague of humanity globally for the entirety of our written history and prehistory as well. So there's an evolution that's happening from a moral, ethical perspective. And I think as we heal, no matter what our trauma is, each of us individually doing our own work on our own healing is super important. Being willing to look at our own story and how we were injured because it's injured, it's injured adults that hurt children. So that's one aspect. And then just being willing to open your eyes and see what's going on and just taking small actions, but making more people aware. I think there's a lot of people that see things in public spaces restaurants, hotels, grocery stores, parking lots, shops, medical situations, and they just aren't aware that what they're actually seeing is a trafficking situation. That's why we need to know the signs. Yes, maybe their action, there could be some action that they can take that could circumvent the trafficker and save a life. So Yeah, it doesn't matter your profession. It doesn't matter your passion or your skills. I promise you that whatever those are, you can contribute. I have seen a chiropractor that literally adjusts victims for free of human trafficking, um, that an organization sends their victims there or or survivors. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's no, so many different that, ways. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Survivors so need, need everything. We need to become aware. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we need to become aware and know what we can do in this fight to raise our voices. Yeah. Awareness is always mm-hmm. such a huge thing. It's as easy as sharing a post. So yes, it is. yeah. Thank you so much, Monique, for being on today. It was sure. such an honor to hear your story and to be able to give a voice to you and through thank your you. profession. And so thank you so much for being on and sharing your story and for being so brave and courageous. Thank you, my listeners, for listening today, and we will see you soon. Thank you for listening to Episode 3 of Giving a Voice with Monique Anna. Don't forget to share this podcast in your communities to raise your voice toward a slave-free world.